Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michael Purvis joins us, founder and CEO of Talback and Capital Advisors. Uh, for all we know, he might not be wearing pants, but I'm pretty sure he is. Uh, Michael, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year's Eve day to you. What, what do you make of this? I mean, it's been an incredible year for people long equities, up like 28%, and the third year in a row of big double-digit gains. Can this continue? I actually think it can. And I think there's sort of an instinctive natural suspicion that, hey, you can't get you know, four double-digit uh, years in the S&P 500 in a row. That's just not supposed to happen. Um, and, and I think while I appreciate that sort of um, instinctive concern, I actually, you know, my price target for next year is 5,500, uh, which is up another 15% from where we are right now uh, uh, there. And I, I think it's, it's, it's people have to, you know, like, look, Matt, this year I was, you know, I was, was among the highest for the year end for this year at 42.50 from 12 months ago. And I upgraded that to 4,800 in July. And I've, I, you know, here we are almost 4,800. I think we ticked through it yesterday, but look, the, 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 the arithmetic of the probabilities for me spell it a pretty obvious way. The 10 years kind of range bound that reinforces a pretty healthy equity risk premium. And you're looking at nominal GDP next year in the United States of seven to 8%. That's just based on Bloomberg consensus forecasts uh, there. Um, and, and potentially, some rest of world, you know, international GDP that will uh, uh, actually recover uh, if and when uh, the virus continues to fade. Um, that will reinforce uh, the international dimension of S and P earnings. So, I, you know, why would you? Why? Why? I guess my my argument is why should 20, 2022 be any different from two thousand twenty one? Um, sure, mm -hmm. it's not going to be as exciting right. in terms of the explosion of earnings growth with base, base effects, but the nominal GDP picture is very strong. You've got big tech um, anchoring forty percent of the index with, uh, you know, really steady. Wait, what, what is your what? Is, by the way, what is your earnings expectation, Michael? Earnings growth expectation uh, for next for the year. US? Uh, it's it's uh, two hundred and sixty. Two hundred. I'm, I'm sorry. That that's twenty three. Two hundred forty. Uh, two hundred forty for next year. 240. Well, let's still go from, strong. yeah, still strong. Yeah. Well, let's go from the earnings or the fundamentals to the volatility picture because we got as high as a 37 handle on the VIX this year. We're now hovering about an 18 handle. January is a seasonally volatile session or seasonally volatile month, I should say. What are you expecting on that front? Well, uh, you know, look, the, the VIX this entire year has been um, very robust. It's been, um, you know, if you look at credit, high yield credit spreads, for example, they they plummeted after the uh, uh, you know the initial shock of uh, COVID in, in the spring of 2020, and they kind of what I argued is that they kind of led the VIX down. The, the VIX, you know, you can measure it on the spread of implied volatility, surrealized volatility, or put call skew or uh, tail skew, and all those different metrics within the S and P options universe, and they've all been saying. 
uh, sort of reflecting tension and some anxiety, right? And and that's one of the reasons why the dips throughout this year have been five to six percent and not fifteen percent, right? It's the markets have been pretty well insured coming into this. And that's a very healthy factor. One of the reasons why I've been very bullish this year and why I continue to be bullish next year, because it seems like the VIX mm. here, you know, it's just going to be, uh, it, it refuses to like just drop down to that 13, 14 level. Um, I don't think we've had a close below 15 this entire year, despite a relentless March higher, right? Um, yeah. There, so that that is very healthy for the S and P 500. I've been, you know, opportunistically putting on some short volatility trades. Uh, but that's, you know, um, you know, you have to sort of uh, pick your spots there. I, I think the like you people shouldn't expect. Didn't you that, close? Yeah, well, Michael, I did. Yeah, so I just closed. Yes, I did. I did. Um, but, uh, you know, that trade was, you know, it made money, but it wasn't a, you know, like a fantastic, like, you know, 2017 style short vol volatility trade. Right um, there. But again, that's that's one of the reasons why that tension within the VIX world is one of the reasons why the S&P keeps sort of relentlessly edging higher here. Um, there. All right, so, Michael, I got to I got to cut you off. I can hear the uh, Cantabrian water dog in the background barking. I think your cows have gotten out. Michael Purvis <laughs> coming to us there from Asturias, Spain. Actually, one of my favorite places in the entire world. Absolutely love um, the area there in Asturias, Spain. And uh, uh, I hope you have a great New Year's Eve and wish the best for you and, and the whole family. Thanks so much for joining us. Michael Purvis there from Talback and Capital. Christina Hooper joins us, global market strategist um, right now at Invesco. And Christina, you know, we have been talking to so many investors who have told us they see uh, lesser returns in 2022 than we've become used to over the past three years. Do you agree? I agree. But let me give you this caveat. I think we're going to see lesser returns when it comes to developed markets. But I think 2022 could be a great year for emerging markets. And that's a year for outperformance for EM, in particular, China, which has had a disappointing 2021. All right. So China is uh, one area that we're watching incredibly closely, not just because of the blew up in the property market, but also because um, they seem set on increasing stimulus and making it really focused. Do you expect that to bring decent gains, both for China I and for the global economy? I do. I do. I think it's going to be a combination of, of monetary and fiscal stimulus that helps the Chinese economy uh, reaccelerate in 2022. And I think we're likely to see uh, fewer regulations, right? We saw a lot of, of regulatory actions directed at reform in 2021. I think we're going to see less of that in 2022. And that should be another positive catalyst for China equities. Um, but for developed markets, I think what we're going to see is more of a con convergence of asset classes. That typically is the case when we enter uh, a slowdown phase of the economic cycle. Um, it's nothing to be scared of, but I do think we're going to see more muted stock market returns. Well, in terms of China, we saw the Golden Dragon China Index, which, of course, is the ADRs listed in the U.S., return 9.4 percent yesterday, their biggest gain since 2008. Of course, it's still very far off the highs. Is China tech a place that interests you? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, now, we certainly have to recognize that China has some long-term policy goals that are part of its common prosperity vision. Um, so we have to recognize that there could still be more regulation to come in. But I think it's pretty understandable the areas they're focusing on, like, for example, data security. Um, but having said all that, there is a lot of opportunity for Chinese technology stocks. I do think we need to be more patient with that. This may not be a 2022 phenomenon. Uh, it may be something that is, uh, is a good story for longer term China tech holders. Christina, let's talk about a second for the Omicron variant, because we have to, to hit about the impact. Now, the consensus on Wall Street is that this isn't going to have quite the same impact on, say, operations, on consumer spending that the original strain of the virus did back in uh, the spring of 2020. But I'm curious how much of 2021's gains were based on the fact that we are going to have this return to office, that we are going to be, have this kind of much bigger progress in vaccines. What is your take on that? How much of those gains might we have to pare back in 2022 as we kind of face reality? Well, I don't think we're going to see a big pairing back of gains because the Omicron variant represents uh, negative um, outcomes in the shorter run, but could actually be a positive in the longer run. Um, and by that, I mean that it is incredibly contagious. And the numbers we're seeing are, are just like nothing we've seen with any other variant. Having said that, the silver lining is that it is, um, it does seem to be far uh, more mild and it moves through populations rather quickly. So we can take South Africa as an example. Um, cases peaked on December 16th. Um, now we're seeing cases at less than half of what they were then. Uh, so this is a really um, fast move uh, through South Africa already burning out. So if we can use that as an example, and that really does happen with other countries, and it seems to be the case um, from, from early indications in some other areas, um, then that suggests that it will move through the population rather quickly, create some real issues in the shorter run, right, in terms of supply chain disruptions, mm. um, exacerbating inflation, but then could move through quickly and have that residual effect of having immunized populations uh, far more rapidly than, say, any vaccination program. Um, so it could be a positive, again, um, if it remains as mild as it seems to be. Are you worried about the Fed in 2021? I know that the market is expecting three rate hikes um, and March is reportedly, according to Governor Waller, a live meeting. But if they don't start until later, they're going to have to squeeze them in pretty tight. Yeah, so I'm not worried about the Fed. I mean, certainly, we always want to be following inflation and inflation expectations. And that is a wild card because there is an element of behavioral economics to all of this. Um, but having said that, I do believe that the Fed um, will have only three rate hikes in 2022 or less. Um, and the market expects three rate hikes. Uh, so I think that creates a, a relatively supportive environment for risk assets. Certainly, we're going to see some volatility. Um, there is going to be some uncertainty along the way um, with regard to monetary policy in the United States. But I think ultimately, we won't see the Fed um, get, uh, get nervous and overreact to any kind of high inflation print. All right, Christina, thanks very much. Pleasure having you on the program, and we wish you and your family a happy and healthy New Year's Eve. Christina Hooper there of Invesco giving us her outlook for 2022. Let's talk about uh, geopolitics right now. Daniel Tenenbaum, partner 
uh, and uh, uh, America's anti-financial crime leader at Oliver Wyman joins us to discuss the not just the phone call that President Biden had with President Putin yesterday, but also the relationship uh, and the issues that um, Russia has right now with the West as it amasses troops on the border of Ukraine, reportedly. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. How do you think the call went to, to kick it off? I mean, it, on New Year's, I'm feeling a bit light. I mean, it was a perfect call for both sides. Um, I mean, realistically, I think both Putin and Biden got their messages in where both sides can declare victory. It was largely reiterating prior points that both sides made in terms of Russian demands of what it was looking for from an insurance standpoint for security, what Biden was looking to put out there in the event that Russia escalated issues, which were largely further sanctions in the event of a further escalation into Crimea or into Ukraine. So I think realistically, both sides were able to walk away with a win, and it really set the tone nicely for the talks that will commence on January 10th with kind of the working level within both governments to try and see how they can de-escalate the situation. But, I mean, as a reminder, this is largely a crisis of Putin's creation. There was no imminent security threat against Russia. Um, this was a preemptive move to move troops into the Donbass and, and begin to threaten um, <laughs> begin to threaten the uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. Dan, in 2014, I could exchange a dollar and get 36 rubles in return. Now, if I exchange a dollar, I get, get about 75 rubles. Really, since that Crimea annexation in 2014, that really spurred a lot of those sanctions from the United States, in addition to that big drop in oil prices we saw then. The ruble has never recovered. Oil prices did, but the Russian currency didn't. And a lot of that is thanks to sanctions. Just how much further of an impact can sanctions have on Russia right now? So the sanctions that were imposed in 2014 were very targeted. They were focused on certain aspects of the financial services, energy and defense sectors. But there is more that could be done. The threats that have been levied were a focus on potentially cutting Russian financial institutions off from global payment systems access, uh, further sanctions to more significant oligarchs and escalation of what President Trump did in 2018 with a number of significant oligarchs where their assets were frozen. Um, there are still more sanctions that could be imposed even on Nord Stream 2 in potentially cutting off the usage in Europe of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have an adverse impact uh, on the Russian economy. So there is still more that can be done. The 2014 sanctions were very surgical in nature. What's being threatened now is much more of a broadsword approach. W wouldn't, wouldn't cutting off Nord Stream 2 be a problem for Germany as well? I mean, don't... I mean, clearly they rely on uh, Russian energy supplies, and isn't that a faster, cheaper way for them to get it? It is, and especially coming into the colder winter months, it's not really the best time of year to start talking about cutting off any sort of access to cheaper fuel. It, it is still something that the U.S. has been pressuring its German and other European allies hard as one of several options and potential sanctions that could be imposed but it is probably one that it's been uh, less interesting to the Biden administration to push forward and something we've seen from Congress in the U.S., where both uh, mm. Republicans and Democrats have been pushing for more action on Nord Stream 2, even though it's completed. Um, and this is picking up off of an issue that wasn't dealt with properly on the Trump administration side. Dan, beyond sanctions, another stick that U.S. officials have waved is the possibility of the augmentation of NATO forces should diplomacy not work. What effect would that have considering uh, Putin's narrative has been that NATO continues to move east? 
I think there's no imminent threat, as we understand it, of further deployment of NATO forces into Ukraine, unless there is certain actions on the part of the Russians to escalate. I think there's certainly talk of using troops to bed down any sort of Russian escalation, any sort of Russian incursion into Ukraine, but that certainly seems to be a last measure. That being said, you know, we have certainly seen sanctions have impacted the Russian economy, but they've certainly not necessarily scared off President Putin. And President Putin seems mm. to understand force above all else. Dan, great to get some time with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, I think we really uh, gain a lot from your insight, Daniel Tenenbaum there, of Oliver Wyman talking to us about U.S.-Russian relations. And we wish you a happy and healthy um, new year as well. Let's get back to the virus because the numbers that we have seen are just eye-popping. As I said, more than 2 million confirmed new cases in one day globally yesterday. It's the fourth day in a row of more than a million. Mercedes Carnathon joins us, vice chair at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Department of Preventative Medicine. And to some extent, this is prevented prevent. Uh, Mercedes, um, but we see the numbers just popping up. Is there any way to turn this around now or does everybody eventually get the Omicron variant? You know, it's a really scary situation and thank you for having me to talk about it. All along, we've known that this particular variant was highly contagious and was infecting people even before they knew they had significant symptoms. And then with it being slightly less virulent and a large proportion of our population being vaccinated, the symptoms can be so subtle that it's really spreading. I mean, I, I, hate to, I hate to say we throw in the towel and accept that everyone gets it. That's not what we want to do because we still don't know what the long-term impacts will be. I think we've got to double down on the masking. We've got to really emphasize and encourage vaccinations. Mercedes, when schools return next week, what should they be doing? What measures should they be taking if they are in person to prevent a spread of a variant which has been spreading exponentially? You know, that's a real concern. I've got young children who are heading back to school. I feel very strongly that they are safer in school than they are on playdates that are happening in a much more casual setting. And even some general uh, public places that you might take them to have some fun. So I think returning to school must be a priority. I think that a central strategy to keeping children safe in school is going to be testing. It's going to be surveillance testing so that you can get a picture of the background rates of the virus within the community and population of the school. And it's going to be testing symptomatic and asymptomatic people so that we can isolate them quickly. Let's talk about the isolation period for a second. We just heard from the CDC uh, very recently that now if you are asymptomatic, you only have to quarantine for five days. It's a ruling that has had some industries, the airline industry is what I'm thinking of, really up in arms about it. What are your thoughts about simply the safety and the effectiveness of that strategy? You know, I think that when, when uh, the CDC and other organizations have to select a, a strategy that involves individual behavior, there are always trade-offs and it can always feel as though it's a choice between two least bad options. The reality uh, is that the recommendation is science-driven. 
We have seen throughout that the infectious period can be relatively short, particularly in individuals who are vaccinated. What becomes more challenging is the unvaccinated and really needing to have separate recommendations. And the CDC chose not to do that and to make the single recommendation, certainly upon release from isolation, masking should still be used in order to protect other individuals. All right, Mercedes, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time on this uh, would-be, should-be holiday on this New Year's Eve day. Mercedes Carnathon there of Northwestern University joining us to talk about the seriousness of uh, uh, the COVID challenge that we still face. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.